The Old Testament ends with these words. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Some 400 years later, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he told him that his son would be great in the sight of the Lord and that he would turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He then went on to say, And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John's ministry was one of preparation and reconciliation. He was sent to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah and to begin the process of reconciliation that would be made possible by his coming. As we have been exploring in our study of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks of that reconciliation in the fifth chapter. And he began by noting that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and new things have come. He then went on to say, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As we've noted in our study, the word reconcile can be defined as to bring back to friendship after estrangement or to simply make friendly again. What Christ did by coming to earth and then dying on a cross to pay for our sins made it possible for us to become friends of God. That is the essence of the good news of great joy that the shepherds were told would be for all the people. At least it would be if it were believed and those who heard it shared it. So Paul went on to say, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If the Christmas message is to be heard and received, we must do the work of ambassadors for Christ. We must become his representatives on earth, speaking on his behalf and offering the terms of peace he has authorized us to offer. As such, we beg men and women to be reconciled 
to God, to be made friends of God. We know what will befall them if they don't. Being an ambassador for Christ is without a doubt a great honor. But it's also a very difficult job. It's not a posh nine-to-five government patronage position. It's a very demanding job with eternal consequences at stake. And we never get a day off. Everything we do, everything we say, reflects on the character of the one we have agreed to represent. In fact, Christ's very reputation is built on the reputation of his ambassadors. The Apostle Paul understood this and therefore took his job as ambassador very seriously. He realized what was at stake and he recognized he had a tough job. But he was convinced that he was doing a good job and even commended himself for the job he was doing. If we would be able to do the same, we should examine what Paul had to say about his role as ambassador for Christ and emulate it. Picking up where we left off in our study after the hyphen that ended verse 2 of the 6th chapter of 2 Corinthians, we find Paul saying that he was confident that he and his associates were giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. Paul did not want to discredit the ministry, so he was careful not to give anyone cause to be offended by what he did. Now, that doesn't mean no one was offended. Many hated Paul. They even wanted to see him dead. The point he's making here is that his conscience was clear, that he had done nothing in and of itself that could be considered offensive. Now, again, that's not to say many weren't offended by the nature of the ministry he had to perform or the message he had to deliver, but he was careful not to be offensive himself. He even goes so far as to say of himself and his associates that in everything, they could be commended as servants of God. Their behavior was completely above board, and they were doing exactly what God wanted done. Again, that's not to say it was easy. In fact, he's going to go on to note that it took much endurance to be a commendable ambassador for Christ. He will even enumerate what it was he had to endure. And what he tells us is probably not what we might expect when entering into a ministry of reconciliation, bringing people and God together. You know, I think we've all come to realize that some are offended even by a simple Merry Christmas. So if we are to openly share the good news of Christmas as ambassadors of Christ, we better accept the fact that we'll be working in a very hostile environment. Second part of verse 4. In much endurance, 
in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. That doesn't sound very good, does it? It's not what most would expect when seeking an appointment as an ambassador. But that's the way it was for Paul. And we should expect the same. Instead of a life of ease, we will find that life will actually get more difficult as an ambassador. And the first thing we'll discover is that coming into the service of the King of Kings does not mean we get a pass on the ordinary afflictions, hardships, and distresses of life. We'll have to endure afflictions just like everyone else. The word can be translated pressures. The things in life that weigh us down. Ambassadors will still have to deal with the everyday pressures of life. And life in the embassy won't free us from the ordinary hardships of life. The word means necessities, the inescapable pains of life, the harsh realities that come into every life. We'll even find ourselves distressed. The word used here describes a narrow place with no room to turn around. We'll find ourselves in situations that will make us anxious, just like everyone else. No, our position as ambassador won't free us from ordinary troubles. In fact, it will lead us into more. In addition to the ordinary afflictions, hardships, and distresses of life, ambassadors for Christ should expect that things will get even worse for them because of the ministry they've been given. After all, we know what happened to John the Baptist and Jesus. One was beheaded and the other crucified. And as ambassadors for Christ, Paul actually found himself beaten and imprisoned. He got caught up in tumults, in riots, and worked so hard he had to go without sleep and food. Later in this letter, he'll tell us that he was beaten without number, noting that he had been given 39 lashes from the Jews five times, beaten with rods three times, and even stoned on one occasion. According to Clement of Rome, he was imprisoned seven times, and we know he was often caught up in angry mob action in tumults. These things came to him because of his position as an ambassador for Christ. Today, at at least here, we probably won't be physically beaten, imprisoned, or mob for trying to be what Christ wants us to be. But we ought not be shocked if people don't respond to our work with open hearts and arms. Like Paul, we should expect hardships because of our commitment to Christ. And we should expect a life characterized by personal sacrifices, such as labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. The word Paul used to speak of his labors as an ambassador indicates toil to the point of exhaustion. It's hard work. 
And it takes a toll to be an effective ambassador. So we shouldn't be shocked if it cuts into our sleep or mealtime. You may find yourself up all night trying to get someone to see how much God loves them or praying for them. You may even have to miss a meal or two or simply deprive yourself to get the job done. So the working conditions aren't good. And you should expect hardships, extra hardships, and personal sacrifice to get done the job God wants done. Obviously, it's going to take a special kind of person to do that. So we better take a look at the qualifications needed for the job. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness. Those are the basic qualifications to be an ambassador for Christ. Purity. That obviously speaks of moral purity. If we are to represent Jesus Christ, we must be morally pure. Nothing destroys the reputation of Christ quicker than a minister who violates his marriage vows, participates in sexual deviation, or preys on children. But it may also have to do with the fact that our motives must be pure. We must not have mixed motives in the ministry. Sadly, I'm afraid far too many ambassadors have been motivated to accept an appointment because they thought it would give them added respect or provide them with personal perks rather than because they truly believed in the work they were being assigned to accomplish. Knowledge. We must be knowledgeable about God and man if we're to bring the two together. We must know what God has revealed about himself and we must understand what sin has done to mankind. Patience. We must be patient if we are to entreat men and women. Since we cannot command them, we should realize it will take time for them to respond to the message we share. So we must be long-suffering, willing to wait, and even be disappointed as we bear with others. Kindness. If we're going to work with people, we must be kind. We can't put them off with a gruff or judgmental nature. We have to be sweet-tempered if we're going to be effective as ambassadors. Those are pretty stiff personal requirements, and we might not think we're up for the job. But one of the fringe benefits of the job is that Christ himself will make us qualified if we'll let him. He makes available the resources needed to do the job. Let's read on. In the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. We haven't been left alone to do the work. When Christ ascended into heaven, he promised to always make available himself in the form of his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will enable us 
to do what needs to be done. If we'll walk in the Spirit, letting Him empower us and direct us, we'll soon discover patience and kindness growing in our life like fruit on a tree. For indeed, they are fruit of the Holy Spirit. And He's given us the word of truth. We haven't been left to our own resources to discover truth about God and man in order to knowledgeably bring them together. We've been given the truth, absolute truth. God has revealed everything we need to know to do the job God has called us to do. And we've been shown Genuine love, God's love. And since we are loved by God, we can love others. And we don't have to conjure up love on our own. We simply share the love that's been given to us. And finally, we are assured that we have all the power of God available to do what he wants done. Nothing is too big for us to handle if he is in it with us. And we do need all that he's made available because serious conflicts should be expected. By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Again, it's not easy being an ambassador for Christ. Not everyone will appreciate what we do. In fact, some will actively fight against us. Paul therefore says we'll need weapons of righteousness for both the right and the left hand. Most likely that refers to the sword and the shield mentioned in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. We'll need both offensive and defensive weapons to cut through the unrighteousness that stands between men and God. We're going to be involved in serious conflict, spiritual warfare. And like all battles, it's going to result in glory and dishonor. Some will honor us. And others will do everything they can to bring dishonor to us. Not everyone will think highly of us. Some will love us and some will hate us. But we can't let that detour us from what God wants us to do. In fact, we better be ready for additional paradoxes in our life as a Christian and as an ambassador for Christ. Paul continues, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul begins this list of paradoxes by giving a reason for his mixed reputation 
He says he was, and therefore we should expect to be, regarded as deceivers, and yet be true. Some people just won't believe what we have to say is true, or that we are for real, even though it is, and we are. He then notes that to some will be unknown, and yet to others will be well-known, will be nobodies to most, but the most important person in the world to others. Because we told them how to be reconciled, how to be made friends with God. As dying, yet behold, we live. Some will assume that we're on our way out, a dying breed that can't last much longer in this world. Yet we live with an abundant life they cannot understand because we already died to self. As punished, yet not put to death. No matter what they do to us, they can't kill our faith. Even death itself is not the end for us, and we know it. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It will be obvious that much we see makes us sad, sorrowful, yet we'll never be depressed to the point of despair will always find reason for rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. We may not be known for our material wealth, but we'll still be able to make those who come into contact with us exceedingly rich in spirit. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. If we truly die to self, We'll have nothing we claim as our own, yet we will be heir of everything. The ministry of reconciliation is indeed paradoxical, and it must seem confusing to the world. A.W. Tozier describes the paradoxical nature of a Christian this way. A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. The man who has met God is not looking for anything. He has found it. He's not searching for light, for upon him... The light has already shined. The world may not understand what we've found in Christ. They may not understand the Christmas message of reconciliation made possible by the coming of Jesus. But we have been made ministers 
of that reconciliation. We've seen the light. And it's our job to do all we can to bring others into the light. When John the Baptist was born, his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise from on high has visited us and has declared that in his absence, we are the light of the world. As his representatives, it's our job to invite others to come to the light and make certain they understand the light of the world is the Christ child who was born on Christmas morning. Let's pray. Father, we come, come before you in awe of you. We worship you. And Father, we, what you've entrusted to us is immense. You've given us the job of being your ambassadors in this world. You redeemed us. You reconciled us. You made us your friend so we can take that message to others. Oh, Father, so many need to hear that message. Sometimes we're hesitant to express our faith. We're hesitant to have it be known that we claim you as our Lord because our life doesn't look like it. Help us to take seriously the responsibilities you've given us. May Christmas not only be a time of celebration for us, but a time of renewal, a time of recommitment to the ministry of reconciling men and women and children to their Creator. Thank you, Father, for giving us that responsibility, and thank you for making it possible for us to fulfill it. We commit ourselves to you afresh. The light of the world is now us. Jesus said he was the light of the world, but then he told his disciples, you are now the light of the world. If the world sits in darkness this Christmas, it's because we're not doing our job. Forgive us. Empower us. Let us be the light. The world needs to see in Christ's name.